Good morning. I want to welcome all of you that are gathered here this morning and those listening on radio and also those watching us live on Facebook Live. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning at First Church. Before we start our service, I have several announcements. We'd like to congratulate Ryan Lagerman and Meg Ranicki, who were united in marriage year yesterday afternoon in the church. Uh, they're cookbooks that we've had for sale for quite some time. This is the end of the summer. They are now on sale for $5 each. They're in the back of the info center. Feel free to take as many as you'd like and leave your money in the blue jug. Our nursery is reopening on Sunday, September 13th which is the day of the ice cream kickoff. Those who are volunteering in the nursery, there will be a short meeting following church service today in the nursery. Sunday school kickoff ice cream party on Sunday, September 13th. Everyone is invited and come and hear all about the exciting things we have planned for our kids this year in Sunday school and enjoy some ice cream with us. There's an item that every year they seem to have, and it's a see you at the pole. It's a thing that's held at the schools around the country. And this year it will be held on September 23rd at 7.30 a.m. All students are invited to join us at the flagpole in front of the Knoxville School. And we will be covering the world, country, schools, and each other in prayer that morning. So we hope to see you all there. Uh, next Sunday, a new adult Sunday school class will begin. The class will be led by Aaron Rohrbaugh and meets in the ministry center. Sign-up sheets are at the info center and in the church office. At this time, I'd like to invite Pastor Joel to come forward. Thank you, Jack. A uh, couple other announcements that I'd like to share with you. First of all, uh, you see we are having communion this morning. Uh, at each one of the entrances, you saw the trays with the prepackaged communion elements. Uh, we have uh, just about one Sunday of those left uh, on, on hand, and so we are going to use those again here this Sunday. We will be sharing communion together at the end of the service. Again, if you are watching on Facebook Live or you are listening on the radio, you can still participate with us as we share in the Lord's Supper together this morning. The other announcement I want to make is in your bulletin. Uh, it's also in the most recent newsletter, and that is a, a, an announcement about an informational meeting on Sunday, October 4th, after the worship service to discuss the safety plan. If, you're, if you recall, all the way back before the pandemic at our annual meeting in January, I discussed how Consistory had been working on a, a safety plan, response plan for our church and in the event of you know, medical or other sorts of emergencies. And so that's something that, that had been worked on for a while. And then when the pandemic hit, along with so many other things, it got tabled. Uh, at our July Consistory meeting, uh, we brought it back uh, into the into the discussion about business, and we feel like it is the time to go ahead and discuss our plan with the church. So on Sunday, October 4th, after the worship service, we will meet in the ministry center for all who are willing and able to come. Uh, we'll talk about what the plan involves, and it'll be an opportunity for you all to to hear about it, ask questions, um, and discuss what is going on. Uh, and then uh, we hope to then take that plan back to consistory with any of the feedback we get from the congregation and move forward with the approval process at the following consistory meetings. So again, that is Sunday, October 4th. It'll be after church in the ministry center. And I hope that you are all able to, to join us and hear about uh, how we're doing our best to create a safe worship environment here at First Church. Thank you. There are numerous other announcements in your bulletin. I'd encourage you to take the time to look them over. And now as we prepare our hearts for worship this morning, listen, listen to Kay Nolte on the organ.
those who are able, would you please rise and join me for our call to worship. This morning is taken from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 8 and 17 through 21. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundance goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This morning for opening hymn, we're going to sing portions of three hymns. Glorify thy name, how majestic is your name, and grateful is the Lord.
be seated. This time I'd like the children to come forward for the children's chat with Pastor Tori. All right. Do I have any kids this morning? I see one. You can come up and join me. Grandma's coming too, so that helps, right? All right, you can come up here if you want. That's okay. So hopefully you all had a great first week of school and that it went well and we were praying for you. Did you go to school this week? No? Okay. So how many of you have used blocks to build huge towers before? And y'all can get involved in this too. Awesome. Okay. Some participation. So today we are going to build big tower. But instead of just building it, we're going to talk about all the things that we're really good at and use that to build our tower. And that's what the blocks represent. So one thing I'm good at is um, singing. What's something else that you guys are good at? Shout it out. We need some participation. (laughs) Sleeping. Awesome. Uh, Let's see. I think my hair is awesome today. You know, if I keep building this up and building this up, what's eventually going to happen? It's going to fall over, right? Exactly. So sometimes we can get a little boastful, a little prideful, and we can build our towers up and think we're really awesome. But what happens if we build it too tall? It falls over, right? Well, this reminds me of a story in the Bible that Pastor Joel is actually going to talk about today. And in this story, Jesus taught his disciples that whenever people boast or brag about the great things they do, they're headed for a fall. And he told the story about two men who went to a temple. And one of the men bragged about everything he was good at. And so he, decided, he was saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this person. I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner over there. And there was another man sitting off in the corner. And instead of bragging about how awesome he was and all of the great things he could do, he asked Jesus to forgive him of all of the times that he's messed up, of all the times he's failed to be the kind of person that God wanted him to be. You know, Jesus was not at all impressed with the things that the boastful man could do because most of the things that he was doing was just to impress the other people around him. And Jesus said that we should be humble like the second man. And the humble man kind of had it all right. He knew that he could, he knew that he needed Jesus and that he could not be the person that he needed to be without God. You know, we could be the coolest people in the entire world, the most awesome people, have all these amazing talents, but none of that impresses Jesus because when we compare our goodness to his goodness, we always fall short and we realize that we just don't stack up against our awesome Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would help us to remember that when we build our life upon your goodness, our, our own goodness, we are headed for a fall. Help us to put our trust in your righteousness and help us to find favor in your sight. We love you and we thank you for this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tori. So we go to the Lord this morning in prayer. I just want to encourage you to continue to lift up our prayers and those that are on our prayers and concerns list that are in your bulletin. Just a reminder that those are updated weekly. And so I encourage you to, to lift up those names, those families that are represented there because they are current needs that are out there that, that we want to lift up and, and, and ask God to, to, to intercede in and, and according to his will. I also want to take a moment to remind you that if you have any any concerns, whether for yourself or a family member or friend, I encourage you to drop a note for us in the office, uh, send us an email, send Connie or I a text message. We'd love to include them in the prayer list so we can be praying for those needs as well. That's an ongoing, uh, ongoing thing that we're trying to do here, that we can be praying for each other in all things, big things, little things. Uh, pray for uh, celebration, praise God for answered prayers, but also lift our concerns to him. And all things we want to do is, is ask God to intervene and work according to his will. So let's take a moment this morning and do that together. Father God, I thank you that we can, we can come to you in prayer. Lord, prayer is a privilege. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, to lift up our concerns to you, not just our own, but others as well. So help us, Lord, to, to take the time 
to not take prayer for granted, this amazing privilege that we have. Let us not overlook it, but see it for what it truly is, an invitation from you, our creator and our sustainer, the creator of the entire universe that desires to, to know us in such a way that we can, we can come to you and, and, and lay our concerns at your feet. Thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious, loving Father who cares for us in that way. And Lord, help us to remember that prayer doesn't have to be anything extravagant or fancy. Lord Jesus, you even taught us that, that when we pray, we don't have to show off. We don't have to make a big deal about it. It's not even about the, the many words we say or the right words that we can say. But when we pray, you tell us to, to come before you and, and in, the, in the stillness of our heart. Lord, you already know what it is that we need before we ask you. So, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and thank you, Lord, that we have that promise, that, that when we come to you in prayer, even when we're not sure what to pray for, we, can, we know that we can uh, pray according to your will and ask for your will to be done. And so, Lord, we lift up uh, our communities, our nation, our world, uh, still in the midst of this pandemic, and we pray for health and safety. We pray especially for those that have been affected directly by COVID and pray for healing for them. And we pray, Lord, for continued guidance and wisdom for our our leaders, our community leaders like our state and local as well as national government, uh, for for people like our school administrators and other you know other churches in our communities. Lord, help us as well as small businesses too, Lord, help us to know how to navigate this wisely and and without fear, Lord. Uh, but but doing it in a way that that honors you and is the best way for us to to watch out for ourselves as well as for others. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for your guidance. And we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. At this time, I invite you to stand if you're able and continue to worship the Lord with us as we sing about his wonderful majesty.
Thank you this morning, Kay, for being here. It's always good to hear the organ playing in the sanctuary again, isn't it? Let's take a moment and open our Bibles here to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. That is our scripture reading for this morning. Once again, that's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I encourage you to open up your Bibles with me if you have them in front of you. If you don't have one with you, I encourage you to follow along. The words are printed in your bulletin as well. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all, who the, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here and worship you through, through music, through prayer. And now as we, as we turn our attention to your word, to worship you by, by studying it and hearing what you have to say to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our hearts and minds into what, into what you have for us here today. And may you give me the words to speak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remember one time when I was at, uh, when I was at Huntington, when I was serving as a youth pastor there, uh, I feel like as I tell stories about that, it's getting further and further in the past now that I've been here for a few years. But there's still some stories that stick with me vividly, and this is one of them. Uh, we often would have uh, some potluck-style lunches after church at Huntington. We, we'd make up an excuse to get together. Sometimes there were fundraisers. Sometimes there were things to talk about. Other times they just wanted to get together and eat food. And so we'd often have these, uh, these potluck lunches down in the what we called um, Ward Hall. It's like the social room uh, just down the, down the hall from the sanctuary. And like it happens a lot, you know, you, you get done with the service and people are just kind of mingling and talking. And I remember one Sunday in particular, Pastor Steve and I were, were still in the sanctuary talking to some people while everybody else had made their way down to Ward Hall. And you could smell the food, the, the, the aroma wafting down the hallway. And, and we just assumed, all right, we're talking to these people like they'll, they'll just get started without us, right? They'll, they'll just dig in and we'll catch up when we get there. Well, a few minutes pass and a few more minutes pass. And I noticed somebody kind of standing off at the back of the sanctuary, kind of standing, waiting, looked like they wanted to talk to Steve or I. And, and I got done talking first. And so the person I was talking with left. And then I walked over and I said, yeah, w- w- what's going on? Do you need something? And they said, well, well, yeah, everybody's ready to eat. We need you to come down and pray. <laughs> they had waited for 10 or 15 minutes for one of the, quote, professionals, right, to come down and bless the food before they would start eating. So they were, they were literally, you know, 50, 60 people sitting in the social hall with all of this delicious food waiting for the professional prayer to come down and offer the blessing. And it just cracked me up. I remember telling them, I said, it's okay, you know, you guys can pray too. You don't have to wait for one of the pastors to do it. Jesus tells this parable here about two people praying. One would, looking at, uh, looking at scripture and knowing the historical context, one of them would be considered one of the professional prayers, right? They would, that was the Pharisee, a religious leader, a respected member of the community and the society, someone that people often looked up to. And there is another person, the tax collector, often lumped in with sinners throughout the gospel, right? There's that that common phrase, Jesus associating with the, quote, sinners and tax collectors, as if they're one and the same there. Two people from different uh, sections of society, different uh, public opinions about them, one well-respected, the other not so much. And yet Jesus tells this parable, this story of the two of them going in the temple to pray, with drastically different results. Jesus tells this parable to a group of people, not identified, but very likely maybe a group of Pharisees themselves, who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down at others. 
And so he tells this story to, to try to get a point across. And that, and that point there is, is spelled out for us in those opening verses. He's, he's speaking to people that were confident in their own righteousness, confident in their own works, in their own goodness. And that's the group of people that Jesus is trying to teach here in this section. And what we see in this parable are two types of righteousness on display. The first is the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, and we'll explore here for a few minutes what that looks like. But the other side of the coin, the tax collector displays a sense of genuine righteousness. Right? He's the one, not the Pharisee, who goes home justified before God that day according to Jesus. So the question is for us today, what can we learn about genuine righteousness from the story? What can we learn about maybe some of our, some of us here sitting here today or listening on the radio or watching on Facebook, maybe we're confident in our own righteousness as well. What can we learn today about what it means to be truly righteous, have a genuine righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but from a relationship with the Lord? And I think there's three things here that I want to point out for us today. The first is that genuine righteousness is humble, not proud. Notice here that, again, the the Pharisee's prayer is very self-centered. He gives God a a passing mention at the start of his prayer, but then the rest of it is focused entirely on himself. It actually starts off uh, kind of in the the vein of, of a praise psalm. Right, flip through the book of Psalms and you'll see all these praise psalms that begin similar to this. Right, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, for... And then the psalmist goes on to list a variety of reasons, a variety of things that God has done to bless you know, his creation, his people. But that's not what the Pharisee does here. He starts off by saying, I thank you, God, but then he takes a wrong turn, doesn't he? He spends the rest of his prayer focused on himself and all the good things that he has accomplished, not the wonderful things that God has done for him. The prayer is entirely focused on the Pharisee and his good deeds. He mentions God once, and then the rest of the prayer is focused on himself. And what the Pharisee is doing here, and what we often do in our own lives, is we're make, he's making an idol of himself. Right? He's making an idol out of his good works and his good deeds. We'll talk about what those good deeds are more in just a moment. But, but take a moment, scan over those verses, and, and notice how much he focuses on himself, how prideful and self-centered his prayer is here. He shines at the spotlight, excuse me, the spotlight is shined completely on himself, and he's setting himself up on a pedestal. Have you ever spent time around someone who, did, who, who had that sort of perspective? where everything was about them and everything was about what they have done and what they have accomplished. It's kind of exhausting to be around a person like that, isn't it? And that's exactly what this Pharisee is doing here. He gives off the impression that God, that God himself should be grateful for all the things the Pharisee had done for him, right? And everything he says here in this prayer, everything that the Pharisee lists off, lists off is technically true. Right, he and many others like him, you know, they did all of these things that he talked about. They 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 avoided sinful decisions. They they fasted more than they needed to. They gave more than they needed to. Those are all good things. And so technically they were true, but the spirit of the prayer, the attitude, the heart was in the wrong place. As one commentator put it, he glances at God, but he compliments himself. Right, so, so there's a heart issue going on here that the Pharisees focused on himself more than God. And it's, and it's a heart issue because, because it gets really at the core of his attitude and his perspective. There's a story in the Old Testament of when the prophet Samuel was sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel. And God sends him to this family of shepherds. And as he arrives, the, the, the father gathers all of his sons and one by one he, they, he parades them, <clears throat> excuse me, in front of Samuel, but one by one, Samuel realizes that the the one that God had sent him to anoint is not there. And finally, the last one to arrive, the last one who was still out in the fields, who wasn't even considered to be brought forth, was a boy named David. 
Right? And when, when Samuel laid eyes on him, he recognized that, that this was the one, he is the one that God had sent, God, that God had chosen as the next king of Israel. And the Lord reminds Samuel, he says, men look at outward appearances, right? Men look at what's on the surface, but the Lord looks at the heart. All right, and it was true for David. It was true in that situation. And it's true for the Pharisee and the tax collector here. As, you know, as, as, pride, as prideful as this Pharisee is here, it's, it's all on the surface. Right? God sees past those things. And God sees what's really going on in a person's heart. And so genuine righteousness is not proud. Instead, it's humble. And the tax collector here displays genuine humility. Now, we often think of humility as, as, as putting ourselves down, and that's not what I mean here by this. The, the tax collector does recognize his sinfulness, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the humility here on display is that his prayer is focused on God and what he can do. Right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not putting yourself down. True humility is rather thinking of yourself less, about removing yourself from the equation. And in this case, putting the attention in the spotlight on God. The tax collector paints a stark contrast. Instead of making a show of his prayer, instead of, instead of standing there and, and praying so that others can see him, the tax collector instead remains off to the side. He isn't able, even able to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but instead keeps his gaze down and beats his breast as a sign of his, of his humility and his, his, his grief over his sin. And his prayer is a simple one, right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? This prayer is very God-centered. He didn't put on a show. He knew that he had nothing to be proud of. Instead, he recognized his need for the Lord and humbled himself in prayer. Scripture reminds us over and over again that God embraces the humble. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And in very similar words in 1 Peter 5, 6, 7, excuse me, chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, Peter writes, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Right? We have this invitation from the Lord that, that if we just humble ourselves, if we, if we draw near to him, then he will draw near to us, that he will lift us up. That's exactly what we see here with the tax collector. Before we move on to our next point, though, we need, to, we need to take a moment and examine ourselves. Remember who this parable is directed at. It's directed at people who are confident in their own righteousness. And we may look at this parable and, and, and look at the Pharisee and the tax collector, and we, and we look at the Pharisee and say, how foolish is this guy? How prideful. He stands up there and he thinks he's got it all figured out. He's praying like, like he's somehow earned his salvation. I would never do that. I would never be like him. Do you see what we've done there? Now we're turning that on our own head and, and we are now confident in our, in our own righteousness by comparing ourselves to the Pharisee. You see, the, the, the trick is not to compare ourselves with other people. It's to recognize our standing before God and compare ourselves, as Tori pointed out earlier, to him. And that brings us then to the next point, that genuine righteousness does not compare yourself to other people. There's a story of uh, two hunters out in the woods. They were, they were pretty far away from civilization. They were far away from their cabin. They were far away from their vehicle. So they were, they were out there all by themselves. And as they were going down the path, they found themselves trapped between a mother bear and her cubs. As you guys know, that's a very dangerous situation to be in, right? And so in that, in that moment, they decide to just run for it. They felt like this bear was approaching. They had no other choice but to, to get out of there. And so they, they begin running and running and running. The bear is chasing after them. And one of the hunters looks to the other one and says, how are we going to escape? How are we going to outrun this bear and get back to safety? And his friend looks at him and he says, we don't have to, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Right? He was comparing himself to others, and that's what the Pharisee is doing here. He's comparing himself to those sinners and the tax collector in particular. Jesus tells this story for those who not only are confident in their own righteousness, but also those who look down on others. And that phrase, you know, the English kind of softens that word a little bit. The, 
the very word that Jesus uses in this parable, excuse me, that Luke uses to introduce this parable for looking down on others could also be translated as despised or rejected. It's actually the same word that Luke uses later in the gospel in chapter 23, verse 11, speaking of Jesus during his arrest. It says, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That word ridiculed is the same as the word looked down in the Greek. And so, so, so Jesus is telling this parable to those who, who look down, who ridicule, who compare themselves to others as a, as a way to lift themselves up. The Pharisee here is bragging about himself and at the same time looking down his nose at everyone else. You see, it's easy to compare yourself to others, especially when they don't seem to measure up in your own eyes. The problem with the Pharisee's way of thinking is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Think about what it means when teachers grade on a curve. That means that, that they take the top, the top score on a given test. Right? They make that test 100% and then adjust all of the other grades accordingly. Right? So everybody gets a little bump according to how the top person in the class scored. So in order to get a perfect score on a test, you don't even have to get all the questions right. You just have to get more right than everybody else. But God doesn't work that way. The question we should ask ourselves is not, am I as good as my neighbor? Am I better than the person I work with? But rather, we should be asking ourselves, am I as good as God? Right? If I just compare myself to other people, I'm always going to find someone who is, who is more messed up than me. Right? We, can, we can look around, we can hear stories and think, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that guy, or I'm not as bad as that woman. And so we look down our nose at them from our little pedestal that we create for ourselves. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, when we, when we, when we instead look at the perfect obedience of Christ as, as described in the Gospels, as Jesus being the complete and full, total fulfillment of the law, we recognize that our self-righteousness fails pitifully short. You see, that's the purpose of the law. That's why God gives us His Word. That's what Jesus came to demonstrate for us. Jesus lived the perfect, obedient life that we couldn't. And God gave us his law so that we could recognize our own sinfulness. And in doing so, we repent and turn to him. The prophet Isaiah recognized this in chapter 64, verse 6. He said, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah recognized that even our righteousness, even the good things we do are nothing compared to Christ's obedience and the perfect and perfect obedience to the law. And that's what the tax collector does here, too. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He knows he doesn't deserve God's favor. And so instead of bragging about his righteousness, instead of making excuses by comparing himself to others, he simply admits he's a sinner and throws himself at God's mercy. He actually says, I am the sinner, not just a sinner. In his mind, and again, this is a part maybe the English softens the effect here a little bit. In his mind, he realizes that he is, there is no one in more need of God's grace than himself. He is the sinner. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Right? That's genuine righteousness. It's acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and entrusting yourself to God's gracious mercy. And third, we see that genuine righteousness then is received. It's not earned. And this is probably the most important thing for us to take away from this parable. The Pharisees were known for their strict obedience to the law. They believed that the Messiah would come through their obedience. That if enough people were good enough, that God would send his Messiah to redeem and restore Israel. That was their way of thinking about the law. And Pharisees today get a bad rap, right? But they were very well-respected members of that society. Many, you know, quote, regular average people looked up and admired them for their faithfulness to the law and their devotion to spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. And so the Pharisee, he knows this, right? And so he goes in and he prays and, and, and 
boasts about all of the things that he'd done, somehow believing that, that those things would earn God's favor. So first, as we've already talked about, he compares himself with those other sinners and says, I'm way better than them. Second, he mentions that he fasts twice a week. Now, according to the law, there was only one day in the entire year that people were required to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. And so the fact that he's bragging about fasting twice a week just shows that he's, he's being prideful about going above and beyond the expectations of the law. And then he goes on to talk about tithing a tenth of everything. Again, there, he, he's going above and beyond the requirements and bragging about it. You know, God and his law didn't require a tenth of everything. In a different interaction of the Pharisees, Jesus points out that, that the Pharisees even gave a tenth of their herbs to the temple, which was not part of the required offerings. So this Pharisee is bragging about all the things that he'd done, and all of the things that he did were true, right? They, there is no, no reason to doubt that those things actually took place, that he truly did fast twice a week, that he truly did give a tenth of everything, not just what was required. And all of those things are good in and, in and of themselves. It's good to avoid sinful behavior. It's good to fast. It's good to give generously. You see, what the Pharisee prayed about and what he said was true. He just didn't understand that his good works meant nothing in terms of earning God's favor and receiving his mercy. The whole story is a reminder that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul learned the lesson himself. I want to read a passage to you from Philippians chapter 3. Paul, like the Pharisees and Jesus in this parable, uh, was, a, was a person who, who was obedient to the law and felt like he had earned his place until he recognized his need for Christ. Philippians 3, beginning of verse 1, says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So here's what Paul is saying, right? He says, I've done all of that. I've done all the good things. I've upheld the law to the best of my ability. There is no one who's done it better than me, Paul says. But he goes on to say in verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here, like the tax collector, recognizes something. That it's not our good works that save us. It's not, it's not our righteous acts. It's knowing Christ and a righteousness that does not come from ourselves or from the law, but through faith in Him. As the tax collector approached the Lord in prayer, his prayer again is simple. He recognized the sinfulness and asked for God's mercy. The prayer here is about God covering up his sins. Even in prayer, he acknowledges that in order for him to be forgiven, in order for him to be redeemed, God is the one who's going to have to act because he can't save himself. His only hope is for God to rescue him, to forgive his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says that he is the one who went home justified that day, that it's the tax collector and not the Pharisee. You see, genuine righteousness does not come through our good works. It comes through a saving faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's it. 
We're reconciled to God through Christ. That on the cross, Jesus took our sin, our shame. He took the punishment that we deserved. And in return, we receive his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He doesn't see our mistakes. He doesn't see the things that we've done wrong. Instead, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ applied to us. That's genuine righteousness. And it begins with a simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we are able to come to you, that you redeem us and save us, not because of anything we've done, but because of your grace and your mercy and what Christ did for us on the cross. Help us to always remember that your grace is greater than our sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you as we prepare our hearts for communion to stand with us and sing grace greater than our sin. We prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. I want to read uh, from a, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is familiar to so many of you. Question two is, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is three things. Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. See, right there in the Heidelberg Catechism, it lays out three things for us that we all need to do is, and we all need to recognize as we approach the Lord and, and seek to seek his forgiveness and seek his grace. And the first is to recognize how great our sin and misery are. It means we say we're sorry. We, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge how we've fallen short of God's perfect law and that we are all in the same boat, right? We are all sinners in need of a Savior. So we recognize our need for him. So we, we confess and say we are sorry for the things that we've done. The second thing we do is we recognize how we are set free from our sins and our misery. That is recognized that it's only through Christ, his death and his resurrection, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed, that we are redeemed. And it is by no other way. So we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for redeeming me and saving me when I couldn't save myself. 
And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So we say, I'm sorry, thank you, and help me. Help me now to live in response to your grace and mercy. Not as a way to earn my salvation or earn my favor, but in response to the grace and mercy I've received through Christ. And so I want to encourage you now as we take a moment to pray, to think about those three things. I'm sorry, thank you, and help me as we approach God's grace and and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father God, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Like the tax collector kneeling in in the temple, we acknowledge that, that we are a sinner and that we ask for your mercy to be poured out on us. Lord, we've all done things and thought things and said things that we should not have done. And we've not done the things that we should have done, Lord. None of us are perfect. None of us and none of our good deeds or righteous acts can possibly earn your salvation. It is simply through the good grace and mercy of your, of your son, Jesus Christ, that we are saved. And so, Lord, hear us now as we take a moment to confess our sins to you. Lord, we thank you that we have this good promise that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. For I I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and having blessed it, So this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I invite all you who have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to take this holy sacrament to your comfort. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is broken for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. In his blood, which was shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink, knowing that he died for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for for this bread and this cup, the reminder, the symbol of all that you have done for us to redeem us and to bring us back into your family. Again, Lord, we acknowledge that apart from you, we would be lost and that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. But we thank you, Lord, and praise your name that you have redeemed us and made us your own. Help us now as we go from this place to to live in response to that grace and, and live a life that honors and pleases you to the best of our ability with the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You may go in peace.